0: it's 82 degrees right now in minneapolis on my last
1: few walks i've taken i've seen so many flowers yeah and i love me some flowers they always put me in a good mood i don't know who who sees a flower and is like that's ugly (laughs) assholes who doesn't want
0: to stop and smell
1: it yeah, I love. I I love too when I smell flowers and they don't smell like they don't have a scent. Some of my friends that know a lot about flowers are like, "Oh, don't bother. That one doesn't smell." And I'm like, "Well, how? I mean, yes, they, it may not smell like a rose or like yeah. a, something more fragrant like a lilac, but mm-hmm. they do all have their own little. It's like tree leaves have a scent, even yeah. though it's not like aromatic. Yeah, I love. Do you have a favorite flower?
0: I mean. I wow,
1: that's a really
0: amazing question. I in terms of fragrance, I'm a huge fan of lilac season mm-hmm. here in the Midwest and beyond. I know they they're hardy plants and grow in a lot of places, but I love that smell and I love that time of year. Wow,
1: favorite flower. I love like cherry blossoms and apple blossoms, oh, like yeah. I love blooming the, trees. Yeah, I do yeah. love that. I think yeah. that they're a really del- usually a really they can be potent but they're usually it is only so for such a short time and there's i think they have a rather delicate smell myself when yeah. i've gotten lucky enough to smell them mm-hmm. uh, in season so
0: yeah very sweet smell yeah you didn't answer I, my question i know i can't really it's hard to decide because i love all kinds of lilies and i love all kinds of orchids uh, i mean they're the i think bird of paradise is one of the most unique things on the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some really weird-looking flowers out there. Uh, So, I guess, yeah, I guess I'd have to think about it. It makes me want to go to the... uh conservatory? Paul, yeah the conservatory and see all the plants there
1: my grandma i know i talked about her during our earth day episode but she loved flowers and she used to have a garden she used to show them in competitions which oh, was really cute she'd have like little tiny what would be almost like look like a picture box or a window you know she'd have like little or little vases yeah. and make a little huh. show a little thing out of it oh my gosh was nice. so cute and she always told me she's like you know there are never any problems when you're in the garden yeah. And so true. And granted, that can apply, of course, vegetable garden, mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so a lot of times when I'm like smelling flowers or looking at flowers for a quick second, I'll think of my grammar. I'll wonder like, did she know what type of flower this is? Because I'm not really good at identifying them. I mean, I know, mm-hmm. you know, the, the top 15 flowers out there that we all yeah. shop for or see when they're blooming. But yeah. yeah, I don't know. I love flowers. Flowers have like a je ne sais quoi. Yeah. Like they have like this this thing that I think is really, pri- like it's very natural and it's very primal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I use those words a lot when I'm talking about wines I really like and connect with and that connect with us. You know, I, I think that flowers just have something to say, of course, how they look, but then when they're blooming, why they're blooming, are they in the shade of a tree or are they in direct sun? And then of course their scent. There are studies out there that talk about how smelling... Flowers is good for your mental health, Mm, um, which is kind of cool. It reduces anxiety. It can help you sleep better. Oh, interesting. Like aromatherapy kind of thing. Think of that, yeah. Yeah. How many people are putting a little flower, you know, a little essence on their temples or on their wrists or something, it, you know, allows for a pause. There are edible flowers, of course, that can make salads taste delicious, desserts taste delicious, but that's- um, let's Cocktails taste delicious. (laughs) I mean, yes. (laughs) Emily and I have cocktails on the brain. We were like, it's 82. We got to make a Mai Tai (laughs) post-show. Mai
0: Tai immediately. We almost considered it pre-show, but we decided to wait with the hard liquor.
1: Yeah. Hard liquor. (laughs) Hard liquor. There are a thousand aromas detectable in wines, but today we're going to talk about and on my side of the the show, yeah, floral aromatics in wine, why we smell them, yeah. what they are. yeah, we're going to taste and smell an aromatic grape. And then we'll talk about a few grapes that have some of their main aromatic signatures are that they're floral. Is this episode
0: about flowers
1: or spring? Both. Okay, good. I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you're coming from a springtime. Right? yeah, yeah, I think we're talking about springtime, but i'm I'm, i just decided because instead of springtime wines yeah i mean we i think we've done that before i love that topic but Mm -hmm. then i'm just going to be like drink whatever you want in spring you know so i just i wanted to talk about flowers because it's springtime
0: of course last year i think it was last year around this time we talked about the flower clock that really cool piece by the uh, french composer jean francais
1: so you're going to take a springtime angle. Today. I'm talking about yes.
0: Springtime and there interestingly enough another French composer who was almost seemingly obsessed with writing music called Spring, although in French so it's printemps, right? Mhm. Just looks nothing like I mean
1: looks like printemps.
0: Yeah. I know. Printemps. So I'm just going to say Spring cuz I feel printemps.
1: Printemps.
0: Yeah. It's beautiful. So he wrote music so many different pieces for different collections of ensembles called that, just literally just that, like concertino for, for violin, spring concertino, you know, spring sonata, spring piano books, spring this, spring that, just all over the place, Darius Mio is his name. Another French composer around the turn of the century was born in the late 1800s and lived till about 1974. So Darius Millot, he was born, I believe, in Provence and then uh, took his brilliant musical mind to study in Paris for a while.
1: I brought flowers for us to smell. Yes. So it was kind of great. I showed up at the studio and I was like, sweet. <laughs> and I'm like, no, they're not for you. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, these are <laughs> I was like uh, no friend of mine. These are for our show today. Show. We are going to, as we're talking about different flowers and the... Because what aromas, when we smell these thousand plus aromas that you can detect in wine, wow. these are all a combination of the volatile and non-volatile compounds in wine, right? And so there are some that... There are some floral notes that are certain compounds, are they don't really smell. Other compounds, they add a little bit to it like salt in a baked good. But then there are different compounds that are volatile and that make When you say a lilac smells like a lilac, that's usually due to one or two signature compounds that really stick Hmm. out to us. And so I thought I would bring some flowers today that we can smell in tandem, talking about it and then smelling our wine and seeing like, do we really smell these things? Which of course we will. Yeah, that's what human brains do, and especially when it surrounds wine, we're like, "Oh my god, I so smell that!" Yeah. Like, <laughs> I remember their damn tasting notes. It's so funny. I remember when I was going through my sommelier certificate courses back in like two thousand five, two thousand four, around that time. This guy in class, he was an older gentleman at the time. I was in my, I think, mid twenties, and he was, or late twenties, or something. And he was in his probably fifties. He was in my class. One of his tasting notes for Riesling said chrysanthemums. And mm. we're we were all like, Wow, yeah, we get it. And then we're like, Well describe why you think so. Nobody yeah. meant to like put the guy in the spot, but he was like, yeah. Well, I can't really describe it. It's like right which is hard to describe When you say a lilac smells like a lilac, it's like, well, why? Yeah. And he's like, well, I actually have never smelled a chrysanthemum before. (laughs) I was like, that's valid because so many tasting notes are so, no pun intended, but flowery and like, you know, poetic and it's like fucking waxing push Yeah. get to the point. But anyway, let's listen to some music. Oh, I'm really excited to listen to some music. Okay, well, let's start off. Put me in the mood for to drink some wine by playing some springtime music, please. Let's do it. Let's listen to
0: a piece called, uh, this is the concertino of spring for violin and chamber orchestra. Darius Mio wrote this in 1934. It's his opus 135.
1: When did you say this guy was born again and passed away? When was his life? Mio was born in 1892. Oh, Died. That's, you know what? Enough said. Yeah. I hear it, <laughs> and it's music to my ears. Mm-hmm. I'm still gonna pass these flowers for you to smell while we're listening to this just all the flowers just smell all the flowers Okay are playing there. Do you know, Avan? I'm
0: not entirely sure. In this piece, there actually is a piece where I know the exact instrumentation. This, though, sounds to me like it is a chamber orchestra, and we've talked in the past um, the difference, some of the main differences between a symphony orchestra and a chamber orchestra is just size. A chamber orchestra is traditionally going to be quite a bit smaller, maybe 40 or 50 players, maybe even just 25 or so. But this uh, is a string orchestra with woodwinds, It sounds like Um, I didn't hear percussion or brass. So, yeah, it's just a little bit of a smaller orchestra, very woodwind heavy. So flutes, clarinets, oboes, because he's French. And that was so Frenchy. So
1: Frenchy. In the early
0: 20th century to just have woodwinds all over.
1: Speaking of size. Yeah. You were like, one is smaller, one is larger. We want to grow our patronage. Yeah. Our goal is to double our patronage in the month of May. So help us out, folks. We need as many of you as we can get to keep this podcast going. We wanted to thank all of our existing patrons. Of course, we couldn't do this without you. You can donate to Scores and & Poor's and help us, you know, help pay for this podcast to be produced at patreon.com slash We make it really easy for you. There are tiers that you can select. In all cases... You get patron-only content. We do recipes. We do paired with wine and music. Jazz is going to start to be included very soon on the show, as well as we include some jazz and patron-only content. Mm-hmm. And there's merch sent to you in some cases. Good stuff. It's such help good us stuff. P- help us keep this going, guys. And for those of you that you know, can't afford it, totally cool. It's our gift to you. Yeah. Enjoy the podcast.
0: You can also catch us on Instagram at Scores and pours. If you have any show ideas or questions, comments, we'd love to hear from you there. And of course, wherever you're um, getting your podcast, if you would rate us, that would be amazing. I mentioned merch.
1: Yeah. If you are into extra merch, we do offer a link on our Patreon page that goes to our June Media Incorporated page, and you can buy merch there. Yeah. Easy to do. Hey, can we drink some wine and smell some flowers? We can. Okay. I mentioned that these thousand aromas are a combination of volatile and non-volatile compounds. I do want to add just something to confuse y'all because that's what I like to do when it involves chemistry, is that the combination of these volatile and non-volatile organic chemical compounds, they're very specific, the ones that make wine smell like flowers Versus making wine smell like fruit, right? And we won't even go into fruit because that's just a whole other thing. Maybe for a different day. All right, let's start with rose. Yes. Okay. I'll, yes, I'll pour you. I'll pour you this sip of wine. I won't tell you whether I think it smells like roses okay. or not. We are drinking a Müller Thurgau, and the reason why we're drinking a Müller Thurgau is because I thought Riesling and Gewürztraminer. I love them to death. Love me some Muscat. Boring. I don't. That's what everybody would do. Okay. Müller Thurgau is a really fun. A in bit. terms
0: of, I'm sorry. In terms of finding a floral wine, those would be the yes. go-to's. Okay, Always I see. Always the
1: go-to's, especially Muscat. Right, one of Muscat, the parents of a lot of different
0: Riesling. Grapes. What yeah. was the other one? Gewürztraminer. Gewürztraminer.
1: Okay. Torrontés is another one. Okay. Müller Thurgau is a bit like Torrontés. It's kind of hard to find, and it's considered a, a floral, aromatic grape variety. Very strong. This is from Enderle and Mole in Germany. We'll talk about them in a few minutes here, but. Does this smell like rose to you, Emily Reese? No. I'm going to pull out the rose. Gosh, that's fun. Sweet Jesus. Whoa. Do you think it smells like this white rose? No. I think it does a little bit. Just the smallest bit.
0: I think it smells more like the plant than the fragrance of the rose. You know what I, I mean? Yeah.
1: I bit the stem, and now I'm smelling the stem. Yeah, no, I think it smells like the fragrance of the rose. Ever so slightly. Not a lot, but it does smell like that to me the main compounds that make rose smell like rose cis rose with a c cis rose oxide is the main compound that we smell when we're smelling roses straight off you know off the bush and that what we can smell in wine as well that's also followed by geranial, narrow. there are other classes of compounds detected at very low concentrations in the air but as little as 5 parts per billion we can smell roses. So roses in to humans are is a very recognizable scent for, sure. for a lot of us, as are most of the flowers we're going to talk about today because I didn't want to speak about Alstroemeria because yeah. some people would be like, I don't know what that is. Can I smell the carnation? Sure. Hmm. It like, smells a little bit like that too. It is a subjective episode in a way that like Emily and I obviously have very different noses and kind of abilities to pick up different scents mm-hmm. because that's just human nature. But just because I say, oh, muller Thurgau smells like roses, first of and foremost, that means not all of them do, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because your muller Thurgau that you buy grown in Oregon yeah. might not have that detectable. It also really much depends on how wine is made. Is it irrigated or not? Is it in a barrel or not? Like this has been macerated on the skins. So we have sort of amplified, I think, a lot of the aromas and the fact that this is all made with native yeast. They mm. haven't added something in here that, because yeast can sometimes brighten aromas, but they can also dampen them. They've added nothing to this in that way. So that, I don't know, I do get a little bit of rose.
0: Yeah, it's definitely f- so floral. I mean, that that I easily contend that.
1: Okay, you can smell that. Cool. Absolutely. And, and we'll like we'll go through all of them as as the episode progresses. Um and there's crossover, right? Which this is what is interesting with the floral debate with wine too is like, or the conversation, not really a debate. But so I say geranial. Okay. Yeah. There's geranial in the family of rose compounds. Okay. There's also geranial is the it gets its name from geranium. It's the main compound that makes geraniums smell like geraniums so there's crossover right like that's why we say floral like as just this umbrella term because there is a lot of crossover and and so forth and just a note too much geranium in a wine is considered a fault so if you smell that geraniole and you're like you might write that in your tasting notes if it becomes too much for you to smell um, it's considered a fault just like volatile acidity is Wow. Let's taste this bad boy.
0: That's it's The color
1: is so or beautiful. Or bad girl or bad they. Mmm. <laughs> wow. Tastes like flowers. Mmm. Whoa. Crunchy. Mm-hmm. Acidic? A little irony. Yeah, really acidic. Not irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little irony. A little bit, yeah. But but metallic more than. Boisterous acidity. Mm-hmm. hmm Very playful and crunchy. Yeah. Mm.
0: yeah, like if you chewed up a bunch of flowers, that's what that would
1: And rocks at the like. same time but didn't break your teeth. Wow! Whoa, what composition is going to accentuate that sip in my mouth? Holy cow. I've got something just for that. Mm, All right. In
0: 1917, Mio lived in Brazil for two years. And the music there and the culture there really influenced his own compositions. He was also really influenced by jazz. Jazz was happening then, very early years of jazz, but those harmonies were influential to him. And it really crept into a lot of his music. One of the other things that Mio liked a lot, and it's one of the dead giveaways kind of for his music, and of course there are other composers that did this too, but he loved to write in more than one key at the same time. So we call that, if there's two keys going on at once, we'd call that bitonality. If there's more than two keys, it's polytonality. So the question comes whether you're hearing two keys at once or are you hearing one key with a bunch of extra notes in it. Okay. So we can hear that in, well, tons of his music. And some of his music, it's so easy to hear it. And sometimes it is more of a complex thing, like you're... You're really not able to pick out two things at once. You you can just hear it as one unit. Um, but uh, we'll hear it in a couple different ways in his very first chamber symphony. Mio wrote a handful of chamber symphonies, and they're very short. I think the longest one is, I mean, maybe five or six minutes long, um, the first chamber symphony is three and a half minutes long, and it does have three tiny little movements. And this, again, is kind of a sign of the times with French composers that they were really into composing miniatures. And so there are just these little snippets of absolute delight, very melodic music. And you know, when you say something like, I'm going to play you this piece of music and it's in more than one key at once, you just think, oh my God, it's going to sound like a shit show. And sometimes it kind of does, but usually it's still just really melodic, pleasant music. So let's listen to a little bit of this first Chamber Symphony by Mio. He wrote this in 1917 when he was in Brazil.
1: And when you say, oh yeah, it's just kind of miniatures and they're delightful and Light, I love to think about, maybe you didn't use the word light, but delightful. I love to think about, I took a walk yesterday, a long walk actually, and there were all these beautiful little tiny violet flowers growing in little clumps in people's kind of on the edge of their front yard, you know, by, under a tree. Yeah. And I don't know, it just made me think of that. Perfect yeah. for
0: springtime. So we're just going to listen to the first movement. It's very short. And we're going to listen to it probably many times just because I really want to point these things out because it's really cool. harp
1: in there harp is one of the instruments and did you say this is here where bi-tonality is happening all over
0: yeah well in a few spots in the beginning it's it's pretty uh, consonant and mostly in a major the harp is playing in a major but the harp is playing the a major pentatonic scale Hmm. very quickly just up and down and that's all pentatonic stuff from the harp in this movement the strings come in, at some point, in the key of B flat major, which compared to A major is a half a step away, mm-hmm. which is pretty dissonant. Yeah.
1: It does remind me of you know springtime is that way. Yeah, you get like beautiful warm days, and then all of a sudden, I mean, especially here in Minneapolis, it's like eighty-two today, and it'll be forty tomorrow and rainy, and you know it probably will snow in two weeks. And the flowers are all like, "WTF?" We're just trying to be beautiful. Yeah, so that kind of makes kind (laughs) of mimics the weather perfectly. Definitely, honestly,
0: yeah. One of my favorite things about this movement is the very end. It's it's really cute because you'll hear people in different keys holding their final note because normally at the end of a piece there's a final chord and it's usually whatever key the piece is in Mm -hmm. so if it's a piano sonata in b-flat major the last chord of that first movement will be in b-flat major yeah. yeah kind of thing so just we'll just listen together closely to the end of this and then i'll tell you what's going on okay Isn't that uh, weird? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's G major. That's G major. So the piece, the melody that you hear in the we clarinet, used to do it again. Yeah, yeah, oh I yeah, used to do it again. from the beginning or no? Okay, just, just that a, end, just yeah. the
1: last little fifteen seconds,
0: the end where you'll hear the clarinet playing basically an A major scale.
1: Yeah, that's really funny. That's great. It's great.
0: Yeah, it's so great.
1: It's, I feel like so it's so random. I do think it is very much like unpredictability and nature will triumph, you know? Yeah. It is sort of like, <laughs> yeah. and you think you can control me, but you can't, even if you get me and put pesticides on me and all the things. <laughs> it's unpredictable and I love it. It's so great.
0: I love it too. I love Mio. And there are are so many great examples of him doing this technique of using multiple keys at once. And it's it's a beautiful sound,
1: you know? Yeah. Cool. Do you want to keep smelling things? Do you want me to keep passing flowers to you to smell? Yes, please. Okay. The next one we'll smell is, and I don't have a lot of details on the actual aromatic compounds in this. I just Got it for funsies because I, I showed up today at Fleur de Lis in Minneapolis on 38th Street. And the guy was so sweet. I imagined I talked to Lee, the owner, and it was super. he was super sweet. And he's like, you know, do you want this? I was trying to explain what we were doing. And I had, all, I had a list, and of course I bought nothing on the list because I started <laughs> talking to Lee and then whatever. This is a, a beautiful little mum. This is a chrysanthemum. Oh, so subtle and pretty and mm, compact. It's beautiful.
0: It came with a little jacket on just so the leaves didn't all spread out. And it was super cute to like take the little jacket off and watch
1: it open up. So I think that this smells oh. a lot more subtle than the rose. Yeah. And a little bit more, dare I say, complex. Let's smell the rose side by side with the mum. And then pass them this way.
0: I agree. The chrysanthemum
1: is more complex, has more depth. I think it's less perfumed. Yeah. And there's more nuance. Like I think that I want to say the rose is more nuanced, but I just think that it's louder. So it makes, it's kind of like, smell me, here I am, I'm a rose. And the mum is like a little bit more subtle and kind of... It's almost like potpourri ish without being potpourri ish.
0: Yeah, the chrysanthemum smells more like a, like when you walk into a flower shop.
1: Yeah, yep. yeah. So when you, did you wine chrysanthemum? I
0: did. Mm-hmm.
1: This is where this is a really helpful exercise too for people in and not in the wine world is to, to really buy flowers and smell them next to wine because unless you've got a really great sensory memory for 700 different types of flowers, it's really hard to get your flowers right when you're smelling wine. I just said there's not a right and wrong answer, and honestly, I guess technically there is if we were to go and put this wine in a test, Yeah. right, because you can test for those things. Yeah. What do you think it smells more like, the chrysanthemum, the wine, the chrysanthemum or the rose at present, or is it a combination of both?
0: I think it's kind of a combination of both. Maybe for me leaning a little bit more toward the chrysanthemum because the chrysanthemum has a depth that I think the rose lacks.
1: Ooh, cheers to that. Emily Reese just putting on the Psalm shoes, loving that. One flower we don't have here to smell are violets. Oh. And I love wines that can smell like violets. They have alpha and beta lonones, they're called, which the latter, the beta lonon, that crosses over with the rose, but at much lower threshold on rose. So you hardly get that. It's not one of the signatures of a rose. Another one you mentioned, lilacs. Lilacs have a compound called e-beta-osamine, and that's the major component in the lilac fragrance that when you can smell that in a wine you're like oh it smells like lilacs there's also a compound called benzyl methyl ether and this plays a significant impact on the scent when they're in full bloom like on the in the plant and that's why sometimes lilacs smell really fragrant and other times they smell fruity when they smell more fruity kind of bruised like that that is the benzyl methyl Oh. Which is really interesting. The benzyl methyl ester. <laughs> I also brought orange blossom water. I love baking with orange blossom water. It reminds me of a lot of my favorite northern African Arabic kind of Middle Eastern pastries and cakes, and also obviously Spanish cakes as well. So let's smell this. Orange blossom water. Let me refresh your glass. Yes, please. Thank you. Now this is pretty strong. Um, this orange blossom water, so you may want to not dip your face in here too much. Okay. But give that a little smell. When we smell citrus blossom, we're smelling nerol and linalool as well. But citronelle is a very common compound oh, yeah. that we smell. Do you get any of that in the wine? The tiniest,
0: the tiniest bit. This orange blossom water also is very floral in itself. Mm-hmm. So super floral. It smells like a grandma in a good way.
1: hmm yeah, yeah, and I we need to when you're smelling flowers too. You need to give or anything spices, fruits, give your nose a break between, because that like especially with the strong orange blossom water or eau <laughs> de orange as the label states on the bottle will stick in your nose. So when you go to smell the wine, some people could be like, "Oh, it totally smells like orange blossom," and actually, you're just smelling what you smelled before. I do think it smells like orange blossom water. A grape varietal that is very well known for orange blossom or orange blossom water as a descriptor is Muscat. Oh, neat. In various forms. Yeah, Muscat is probably one of the most traveled grapes on the planet. Very well known for both sweet and dry wines. But it's got that very fragrant, kind of orangey, but very white flower, beautiful nose. And especially when it has a little botrytis, that noble rot that can... It accentuates that and it brings out lilacs as well. And that's why a lot of um, the world's best dessert wines, floral is a very common descriptor because you have, you know, the chemical compound for lilacs and orange blossom. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. What flower so far, we have three more to smell. What has been your favorite, including the blossom water, orange blossom water?
0: Uh, it's funny because smelling carnations which we did. I asked you if I could smell the carnation when we first were smelling the rose. Are you counting that in your question?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay.
0: When I smell carnations, it reminds me of like wearing what were those called, corsages?
1: Oh, hilarious. It just like reminds prom me or something of something like that. Yeah,
0: like prom or homecoming or for some church event or so. it's just funny because that smell just brings me back to that. Mm. Um I, I really am taken with the chrysanthemum right now, honestly. Just okay. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I would have to agree with you. I think they all smell really beautiful, of and I'd want any of them on like on my pillow scent or something like that. Yeah, when I went to sleep to to be calm. But yeah, I think the chrysanthemum too right now is mm-hmm. is playing a fine fiddle uh, in my <laughs> nose. All right, let's do it. Let's do some more music.
0: Cool. Let's go ahead and listen to a little bit more of this little miniature symphony by Mio. Again, this is his uh, chamber symphony number one, and uh, let's go ahead and listen to some of the second movement. You'll hear lovely oboe playing right off the bat.
1: It's, it's interesting to me because the first movement really reminded me of... Vis- it was very visual, and this is very smelly. Oh. Like, this reminds me of the aromatics of spring yeah. as opposed to the visual. And I don't know if it's because of all the strings and the oboe together being like... Mm-hmm. It's written
0: more lushly. It's scored okay. th- more thickly, even though there's only two violins, a viola, a cello. There's a piccolo player, a flute player, a clarinetist, an oboist, and a harp player, and that's it.
1: Wow, this really feels like... Take a sip of the wine, because exactly. the wine feels like... A lot of times, floral wines, they don't have skin contact like this, so they kind of are white, pretty, delicious, but they're not... Yeah. They're not thick Yeah. and rich, Yeah. and this is definitely not too rich...
0: This will be a really good example of something that's bitonal, but really not considered that way. It's considered one key with a bunch of extra notes. Listen to the harp. So the harp is playing, the first three notes, if we go from bottom to top, are F, A, C. And then we're going to add another triad on top. So Mm -hmm. we're going to add an E. That is called an F major 7 chord.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. Okay. Then... I got you. I got you. I follow you. The top
0: part of what the harp is playing is an E minor triad. So the top part Ooh, of So the harp, we're adding black keys? Nope. Still white keys. We're going to add EGB. And that's added on top of what was in the bottom, which sounds like this.
1: Rainy springtime. Cool. All right. Let's listen to it now that you just did that.
0: It goes really fast because the harp is just plucking that chord. So okay. let's yeah. So let, you'll hear it twice. The harp plays it twice at the very end. Okay. There it was. There yep.
1: Was one. Wow. Did you hear it? Yeah. Yeah. Super weird. So my yours sounded almost nicer than that. <laughs>
0: Well, it does cuz the the woodwinds are in a different they're in their own world. Yeah. Like they're not in the key that the harp is in. Yeah. "Quote unquote" if we're going to think of it like that.
1: So So if, they kind of seem like they play in a dissonant way on each other cuz you have the clarinet playing and then you have the harp that's like and it just sounds like yeah. beautifully weird.
0: Yeah, the harp kind of comes out of nowhere with those beautif- that beautiful chord it plucks twice. Tail little bolt of lightning in the background. <laughs> I'm
1: like I just hail. Oh my God. And Emily's <laughs> kind of looking at me like, okay, let's just give it to her. Well, give it to her yeah.
0: So there's one more movement. So let's listen to some of that now because this third movement is kind of neat because um, it's less about a bunch of the players being off in their own key than it is kind of tricking you with the tempo and doing things not how they're usually done is kind of the way I can. And so to listen to it, you might be like, oh, that sounds weird. So yeah, let's listen to the third movement of this little chamber symphony by Mio.
1: We've added animals. There are animals. Things are scampering around. Squirrels and birds are fighting. So pretty. I love how that harp was
0: just pretty much the whole piece, really. That's yeah. what the harp does. It's amazing. That's it. Everybody ends in the oh. same key. It's
1: so nice. It's so pretty. A little bit of me-oh. oh
0: I love Darius Mio.
1: He was really nice because not all nature finishes at the same time. Nature's all like survival of the fittest until humans get involved.
0: One of Mio's, uh, he had a lot of famous students, um, You know, classically speaking, someone like uh, Stockhausen, huge composer from the 20th century, but also Dave Brubeck, who is a famous jazz pianist, more traditionally thought of, and... Uh, Brubeck actually named one of his sons Darius, so they had a pretty close relationship.
1: That was one of the first, you know, when you bought used to buy CDs and you'd buy yeah one CD, sometimes it'd come in a two CD set or a four CD set. That was the first four CD set I ever bought was a Dave Brubeck. Oh, nice. Four CD set. Love that guy. Oh, yeah. Lavender lavender. Who doesn't love some lavender? I do. Oh, me too. It calms you. Yes. The main component that we smell in lavender is s-linalool. That's what makes lavender when you're like, oh, it smells like lavender. You're smelling S Weird. Pardon me if I'm mispronouncing that for you organic chemists out there and <laughs> people, botanists and the like. But there's also, um, there is some Cicero's oxide we talked about. Narrow geraniol, So there's a big crossover with the rose family and the geranium family. There's also, um, I mentioned geranium and geraniol. Lavender has lavandulol. There are a lot of compounds that get their names specifically from, you know, the plant that, that we're speaking about. Gewurz. I mentioned Gewurz. The name, I think, refers to like, because Gewurz, verts means spice. Okay. And Gewürztraminer, it's like the spice from the village of Tramon or something like that. And the ER is the apostrophe. And so Gewürztraminer gets its name from the fact that it smells like this spice, this baking spice. But rosewater is what's most commonly associated with Gewürztraminer. Riesling, peonies, all day.
0: Wow. Like if you're
1: really, if you just are doing what we did and we just like got up there and are doing the, they smell like peonies, they smell like carnations, they huh. really smell like apple blossoms okay. just in such a huge way. It's unfortunate because I've been like, muscat and orange blossoms and lilies. Where are the red grapes? Mm. R- red grapes, when I look online, I looked online, and they were like, tempranillo smells like all these things and Syrah, and I was like, no, they don't. <laughs> like I think a lot of times people do kind of, hunt a little too deeply to be able to throw the floral descriptors around because they are pretty and beautiful and they are a selling point you know you're talking about something you mentioned peony it smells like peony someone's gonna buy that for me they don't really I don't think have a super floral inclination unless there's like a little bit of that whole cluster fermentation that carbonic maceration that can sort of incite a little bit of those floral aromatics, kind of coax them out. Yeah. Um, and so in Syrah and Gamay, that can be kind of animal-y, kind of uh, red fruit tone, kind of floral. I do get a little dried rose, a little potpourri often comes up in my tasting notes Yeah. when I'm tasting those grapes done that way. But let's talk about Pormuller thurgau because we've been sipping it Yeah. and smelling. And we have yeah. two more flowers to smell. Nice. Muller Thurgau is a crossing, meaning a purposeful crossing, of two different grapes, one of which you've heard many times, Riesling, and one Madeleine Royale. Hmm. I just think of the Royale with cheese. (laughs) Yes, But no, Riesling and Madeleine Royale, back in the 1880s, by a Swiss vine breeder named Hermann Muller. He was born in the Thurgau, Canton of Switzerland. And for the longest time, this grape was called Rivaner. Like people, he kind of misled people, and they thought it was Riesling crossed with Silvaner, so Rivaner. And it's still called oh. that to this day in Germany in some places. Huh. But the reason why later someone else who knew Hermann Mueller was like, let's correct it and call it what it is, Mueller, from who was from the Thirgau region, which is how this grape gets its name. Neat. It's got very noble grandparents. So one of the parents of Riesling is Gouillet Blanc, which is like the parent of everything. Okay. And then the Madeleine Royale, one of its parents is Pinot, the Pinot family. Nice. So we have like Pinot and Gouillet Blanc, which are the parents of everything in this world, pretty much grape oriented, not really, but you know if you Lots. look at a lot of noble varietals. So this has the potential to be a really great grape. Why was it concocted, though? Why was it crossed? He found, Herman Mueller found, that when he made this grape, it was a very prolific yielder. It had medium, low to medium acidity. Loves a cool climate, so perfect for Germany at the time. And also, it took to a ton of different soil types. So what happened? This grape, poor Muller Thurgau kind of got relegated to like everybody that wanted to make shit wine and leave uh-huh. for milch. Yeah, It was like the second most planted, or actually, it was the most widely planted grape varietal, even surpassing Riesling in the 70s, because everybody, especially in the Rheinhessen, southern Germany, blended it with Riesling, Sylvaner, in order to call it Liebframilch, which, you know, wow. any grandparents that want to become patrons, thank you, <laughs> and you'll know what I'm talking about. You bought Don't don't feel bad. I did too, and I still do Once in a Blue Moon, because it's very... Not interesting, but educational, has to be 70% either muller Thurgau or Riesling or, or okay. Silvaner. And because Riesling isn't and Sylvaner aren't as they don't yield as much grapes, it just makes more sense to rip yeah. it all up and plant similar to Thurgau. This producer, though, who we'll talk about in two shakes, is making kick ass Miller Thurgau. And now it's kind of like a vogue thing in Germany to make. Well, wait a minute, we got this awesome grape, these grapes that are great. Yeah. Just they've been treated like shit for years. Let's treat them well, and then look what happens, world-class wine. Amazing. I'll go there in two shakes.
0: Sounds great. A little bit more of Mio. He wrote a set of piano music called Spring, Printemps. Book one, he wrote from 1915 to 1919, so overlapping with his time in Brazil. And then he wrote book two, it took him less time, 1919 to 1920. So kind of back-to-back working on these books of piano music from Mio. Mio apparently was a really fast composer and with ease could just crank off off a piece. And it wasn't like, you know, you hear about Brahms burning half his music or Beethoven (laughs) like (laughs) scraping through the paper trying to make edits and stuff. (laughs) Apparently it was not like that with him. And um, Mio also for most of his adult life had a lot of trouble with arthritis. So he was in a wheelchair starting, I think, in the 1930s, right around there. So most of his adult life, he was mostly in a wheelchair. He could get around with a couple of canes, but he usually was in a chair. And his wife, if you go on YouTube, there's this documentary called uh, Visit with Darius Mio. And I, I, I didn't write down what year it's from, but... It was from the Pennsylvania Public Library's Film Center. And it's like about a half an hour long, and there's something wrong with the audio for the music tracks, so that's hilarious to hear because all the music sounds really demonic. But all the voice tracks, all the people talking and stuff is completely fine. It's really uh, fun to see. But one of the things I did pick up on is that he whistled to his wife to get her attention (laughs) which because he'd be in a different room, right? And so he'd just like... Do it. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Just Mio sitting at the piano and he needs his wife and... <laughs> I love I mean, that so my family kind of does that too. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, it's better than a bell, I think, almost. So I, my parents
1: listen to this in the car when they're driving around. Yeah. They listen to scores and pours, which nice. is cute because neither it. of them listen to classical music and neither of them drink wine, but they know <laughs> a lot about it now. That's awesome. If I go... <laughs> yeah. And I'm in a store. Yeah. My mom, 17 aisles away. Be like, what'd you need? (laughs) And it's quiet. We do it quiet. But who does that? That's amazing. That's for you, Ma. I love that. Yeah.
0: So that's how Mio would get help from his wife. And uh, she was a musician too. And so they would play pieces together and go through. Hey, I got this done. Let's play it together. It's super cute. Uh, Anyway, so here's from the, uh, this is some piano music that he wrote called Springs, from book one.
1: So Frenchy. What's interesting about the difference between this sound and the wine is the wine is very cut. It is very German. Oh, yeah. You know, it is defined, and it there's nothing remotely lackadaisical about how it presents itself on the palate nor on the nose. Yeah. So that's kind of just an interesting mm-hmm. kind of opposites attract situation that's happening here, both very springtime, both very floral.
0: Yeah, playful.
1: Yeah, but one being A La foncie. Yeah.
0: So in book one, I mentioned he wrote two books. There's three pieces in each book. So his Opus 25 Springtime or Spring book uh, and his Opus 66 Spring book. Each have three little tiny piano pieces in them.
1: As we're trailing off this beauty, you want to know why I chose this beauty to drink? I would love to. So Enderley and Mole have been like Sven Enderle and Florian Moll have been some of my favorite wine producers in the last few years that I've gotten to know well in Germany. I still remember the first Müller Thurgau or Thurgau I ever had. It was really? In 2004, yeah. I was working at this wine shop and I tasted a producer called Pogger Isandri e from Northern Italy. And they almost single handedly started to kind of put in a small way. Muller Thurga on the map and like champion how good the grape can be. And it was of course a really clean style, but I remember tasting it and being like, this is so floral, but it's so Alpine. And that really made an impression on me. And fast forward now, you know, 15, 16 years or whatever. Like I just, the, this wine tastes nothing like that, but everything like that, you know, you can definitely tell it's the same grape. And these guys are located in so now we're back to Enderle and Moll. They're in the Baden, so, so the far southern reaches of German wine production. And this is Pinot Noir country. And Pinot Noir is what they're known for, like all these almost Burgundian style Pinots, but in this warm area, incredible terroir driven wines. And of course, they want to get bored and they want to play with stuff. So they've got a little bit of Muller Thurgau, a little bit of Grauburgunder, also known as Pinot Gris. They've got Weissburgunder, Pinot Blanc, and they have started to take Müller-Thurgau and be like, yeah, you know, we're not happy just making Müller-Thurgau. Now we're going to make it on different soil types and we'll have different levels of skin contact. So this is their Müller-Thurgau 2019 Bunt Sandstein is what it's called, which means basically like a brown sandstone very compact soil. Some iron in it, I'm sure, for the color. And you can taste how compact this wine is. All organic fruit that they're growing, and and if they purchase any fruit. This specifically has spent two to three weeks on the skins. Let me pour this in your glass. This is now, I think, perfect temperature. We've been recording for, well... It might say forty minutes on your thing, but we've been recording for like two flipping hours and you with all of our starts and stops. Jesus. But this is got about two to three weeks on the skins. And then just first of all, get a load of that. Two to three weeks, how aromatic it is at this temperature. We're at like cellar temperature, maybe this is fifty eight ish degrees, sixty degrees. There's a lot going on when you give it a whiff. Mm. Wet minerals.
0: Yes. Still just so acidic.
1: So acidic. Very chiseled. And thankfully, they've aged this in used barrel to kind of calm those edges. Imagine if this was in stainless steel. This would be like mm. so ragey and fiery. 10 months on the Lees, so it wants to be creamy, but it's not. And I don't know. I just love it. I think they're such a cool producer doing such amazing things in southern southern Germany. Of course, with Spaper Gunder with Pinot Noir, but also with little Muller Thurgau that does not deserve to be relegated to frickin' Lieberfeldtch, you know, territory <laughs> and only that. It can be world-class people. Yeah. I don't know. Do you like
0: it? I love it. I mean, I it's it's unusual for me to dislike a natty white wine that doesn't have flaws and isn't made in a ton of oak.
1: Well, and I... Okay love that yeah i do want to qualify yeah that this i would consider this net or t almost natty Okay. Because it is, once in a while, if they need to do a very light filtration, okay, they will. Yeah. Which, granted, I am, like, all anti, but I'm in my old age of mid-40s. I'm starting to be like, listen, do I want to eat bees and grape chunks? Sometimes, <laughs> but sometimes I don't. Yeah. And so, like, if they're able to, I mean, look at this. This shit still has sediment. Yeah. I mean, I'm, like, holding the... the bottle up to the light for Emily to see through mm-hmm. the window here. And you can see the... Cl- it's cloudy. Yep. You can see the little bit of sediment. So if they're just getting out like particulate, like bigger, great particulates, yeah. technically then they can't say it's unfiltered.
0: Right. So... Right. I don't okay. know, but I just so want to throw... mostly natty. Yeah, I just want yeah. to say
1: that for people because we try to be on yeah. the show as honest as we can about yeah. that kind of stuff. I so. just...
0: I love white wine. It's my favorite. Yeah, you do. I love... uh You know, white wine that is not commercially produced with tons of shit in it. And I love white wine that's not mousy and not oaky. Not overly oaky. I don't mind a little touch of oak. So I think this wine is delicious.
1: Love it. It's delicious. I'm glad you like it. I love it too. Thanks for Von Boden for taking a chance on these guys years ago because their stuff is great and all of our lives are better for it. So
0: Yeah. That's another one of those importers you can't go wrong with, von Boden. Truth. You just spin the bottle around, you're like, yep, I'll like that. Mm -hmm. One more piece of Mio. This is simply called La Printemps for violin and piano. This is his opus 18. So uh, of the springtime pieces that we've listened to, this is his earliest. He wrote it in 1914, Piano and Violin.
1: This guy was cooped up in the winter because he just gets to springtime and is like, yeah. (laughs) If he did, perhaps was you know that was his muse. He, Um. it's surprising number of
0: pieces named after spring, but he also did some other seasons as well. But spring wins.
1: smell that lily oh good way to go out i will carnation and lily you yes
0: oh the lily smells like fresh
1: rain yeah this is one of the less aromatic lilies i've had in a long time usually stargazer lilies of the white and very deep purple varietals are very super aromatic this is an Mm -hmm. orange lily that we're smelling and you're right it's not very aromatic at all smell the carnation The carnation, to me, smells like if this boot sandstein soil were wet and had flowers smashed in it. Like, it's kind (laughs) of floral, but it kind of smells like wet sand. Yeah. So would you agree that this wine smells most like, perhaps, carnations and mums today? Or are we we chrysanthemum slash mum orange blossom water?
0: I would maybe say chrysanthemum rose.
1: I'm proud when I watch Emily Reese smelling each flower individually and smelling her wine after each one with time in between. It makes me very happy. I wish, I can't wait to be doing this with all of you, hopefully in the near future, having live wine education. Okay, well, I'm going to say chrysanthemum carnation. Okay. You're saying chrysanthemum rose. I do, yeah. To Mio and to Springtime. To Scores and Pores. To Scores and Pores. To Muller Thurgau. To Von Boden. And it's just smelling the flowers, people.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash You'll find a link for merch there. You'll also find a playlist and a wine list.
1: We're on Instagram, at Scores and Pores, and that's a great place to direct message us with, listen to me sounding all old, DM us there, uh, with any show ideas, any comments, feedback, stuff like that.
0: Please do consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music.
1: This episode is edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media Inc. June, June, little kitty.